Hey, I'm Hollis. And I'm Grace. And this is As You Are, a podcast where we interview creatives about who they are, their passions, and what drives them. If you don't know, Tess Garcia is a writer, a content strategist, a podcast producer, a yoga instructor, extremely busy with bylines in places like Refinery29, Teen Vogue, InStyle, Bustle, and a bunch of other publications writing really interesting work about fashion, politics, arts, cultures, and everything under the sun. We had a really great time interviewing her, so we're really excited for you to hear it. My name is Tess Garcia. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am zooming in from Brooklyn, New York. Hopefully there won't be any siren interruptions. This I'm in Harlem. I get you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking that there probably won't be any issues, but I always say that. And then there's like eight fire trucks at the same time or something. So who knows? Yeah. And I'm from Michigan. And that is how I loosely know Grace through the University of Michigan. Hollis and I have been so excited to talk to you. I mean, there's like a list of things we're like, we need to ask you about this, but we'll just have at it. A hundred percent. This will be a police interrogation, but in a fun way. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're going to um, start off. This is a soft one. So okay. just take it where you will. But just what's something that you've been thinking about a lot recently? What's on your mind? What's been on my mind recently? Um. You know what? It's kind of heavy, so apologies to take your soft question and spin it into something that's kind of intense. But in my neighborhood, well, New York City in general just had an influx of 17,000 plus migrants from Central and South America. And there are a few shelters that were put up in my neighborhood, like within walking distance of my apartment. So that's been on my mind. That's actually where I'm headed after this to do some work because... On one hand, I I see that the city is putting people up in shelters and that's it's like nice to know that like they are putting in work for asylum seekers. But on the other, I keep having these questions come up in the back of my mind, like what happens next for these people? And I truly don't have an answer. And I'm not sure, frankly, that the city does either. Even if even if they really wanted to, I'm not sure they could have an answer mm -hmm. in terms of legality and and legal legalization in general. I I don't know. So that's the back of my mind has been like, what needs to be done right now to serve immediate needs when we can't think about the future too far because we truly don't know what's happening next. As I've been going through my day-to-day -day work, kind of like, okay, this matters to me. I'm stressed, but it's really not that deep because there's something else I need to be thinking about right now. And it sucks to have something on your mind so prominently and know there's probably nothing you can do about it no matter how much work you put in to try to help somebody if the process is is not going to help them it's not going to help them so I've been trying to grapple with like what does it mean to help someone again like I said with immediate needs knowing still that it could all go to shit for them completely beyond your control and their control what does it mean to still have the enthusiasm to help anyway? And I've that's been sort of a moral question that's been stuck in my brain and been occupying most of my time in therapy so starting off with a soft question apologies but I'm I'm like that's like whenever my brain is like going blank those thoughts drift in no don't apologize at all those are the existential questions of we live in a society now what <laughs> like yeah. it's rough right. so I'm I'm wondering what is the work that you've been doing what are you headed to next yeah, I'm working with, I live in a neighborhood called Park Slope. It's to the side of a neighborhood called Gowanus in Brooklyn. And I'm working with Gowanus Mutual Aid. It's a mutual aid organization, which, <laughs> you know, like people might not know, but it's the kind of thing where it's people in the neighborhood trying to create institutions and bolster institutions that already exist for other people who are new to the neighborhood, might not have the same resources in the neighborhood. And I'm working at sort of like a store almost where people can come in and grab what they need. So it's been a lot of sorting and stuff, but it's been mostly, there's a lack of Spanish speakers. So it's been great. I've been able to help with that. And it's really intense to, it, it just sucks. I'm like, these people are coming here and like people are trying, but if no one can speak to you, it's like, what? What are you even supposed to, you can point to things and, and people are doing their best, but I don't know. It also feels like a lot of pressure, like, oh, she speaks Spanish. Go to her. Go to her. She'll know what to do. And I'm like, will I? 
Off of that, a bit about like just language barriers in general. I think we saw that you maybe more recently learned Spanish that you were going on a trip to maybe a family wedding or something and you yeah. and now you've started to learn Spanish. Can you talk to us about the intention behind that, how it's shown up in your life and I mean, it sounds like now you're kind of the go-to person with the work that you've been doing recently. How has that been, just experiencing people really leaning on you for your Spanish skills? It's bizarre and feels super ironic, but just for context, like you were saying, my dad was born in Argentina, moved to Michigan with his parents when he was literally a baby. They moved back briefly to Argentina, but then moved back to Michigan. So he, for all intents and purposes, grew up in Michigan. My mom grew up in Michigan as well. I did not speak Spanish growing up. My parents really tried to get us into it. They tried to like get a babysitter who only spoke Spanish if we needed a babysitter and things like that. My siblings and I were just not having it. It was very much like- <laughs> It's our not mom taking. <laughs> right, our mom doesn't speak Spanish. So it was sort of like, well, if she doesn't, why do we have to? And there's really no good answer to that <laughs> when your kids ask you that question. But I got older and even in high school, I was in Spanish class because I was like, I like the idea of learning it. And I I have family in Argentina still, a lot of extended family. This cousin whose wedding I went to. And in high school, I started to feel embarrassed in Spanish class. Because sometimes the teacher would literally be like, Tess, growing up, did you ever hear this and this? And I'd be like, yeah, but that doesn't mean I know what it means. It doesn't mean I speak anything. And it wasn't like I was angry at them or even at me. It was just sort of like, I couldn't have known when I was a little kid that this is a skill I would have really wanted and needed. Yeah. But uh, in college, actually, there was an intensive Spanish program in the residential college at Michigan. That's where I really like hunkered down and learned Spanish. And I met my best friend who was my roommate at the time. And it was like only Spanish four days a week. Your other classes you had, but you had like at least three hours of Spanish only four days a week and you did like Spanish lunch hours it was it was really really the structure was incredible and it was pass fail which meant that you were really focused on absorbing the language I loved it I mean at the time if you'd asked me if I loved it I'm not sure I would have answered that. <laughs> but even directly after I could I could tell how much it, of a difference it was making in my life and I was starting to communicate more with my cousin who's my closest cousin in age in general, she just happens to be from Argentina and social media was opening up doors for us to, to get to talking more. I didn't really know what I was missing at that time, but once this, the doors sort of started to open for me to actually speak and social media got me plugged in with family that I hadn't forgotten about, but never even considered an option in terms of communication. I was like, wow, this is a whole world that I have access to. These are people who have my back no matter what, regardless of whether I can understand them or vice versa. And I really was like, I want to catch up on having these people in my life and knowing this side of my family's lineage. And I studied abroad in Spain, which was helpful as well. Oh, me too. Where? Yeah, I studied in Granada. I went to Barcelona. Oh my God. That was the, the one city that I'm, everyone's like, how the hell did you study in Spain and not visit <laughs> Barcelona? And I'm like, because I was living in a dorm with like 50 Spanish girls. I was trying to get to know people. While you were was... focused on the right things. Barcelona will be there. It's basically- well, That's the thing. I'm like, like, like everything's going to be, everything's going to be there. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And it, it was really helpful. And, and then from there, I needed to use my ticket by the end of 2023 that I had booked originally in 2020. It was going to expire. And it worked out that my cousin's wedding was going to be in December. And so I said, let's go. <laughs> and it was super transformative and wonderful. And I feel like I'm jumping around like crazy, but it has been ironic to be the, the go-to Spanish person here, Spanish speaker. Whereas growing up, I, I was the opposite end. I was like, if someone needed something in Spanish, go to anybody but Tess and her siblings. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, wow, that that's really so, fascinating. I That was so beautiful. I think oh, that- <laughs> no, truly, I think especially because, you know, I also really like to volunteer and do things like that a lot. And it can be really hard to think, how do I even approach this problem knowing that I know I can't solve it? Like, I know that the end goal is not possible yeah. for me to do individually, but I, I still think it's really beautiful. Like everything that you did throughout your childhood and choosing in college to learn Spanish 
prepared you for what you can now do for people. And like, that's a really beautiful thing to be able to do. So I know it provokes a lot of existential crises, but like, you know, nothing goes wasted. So I I think that's a really beautiful story. Thank you. Kind of going off that, you know, it sounds like there's so many things that are floating around in your brain day to day based on what you've told us. How do you deal with all of those things and still manage to show up every day and not feel guilty when you can't show up physically? I think anything I can do to remind me that it's not about me in those situations at least is helpful. For example, I couldn't show show up yesterday. It's not about, oh my God, Tessa is such a bad person. She's not here. It's a practical need of someone who speaks Spanish is not present right now. What are we going to do instead? Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with me. It's just, I would have added something that they objectively need to a certain degree. So it feels sort of like therapy is a great place to remind myself. This is so much bigger than me that I'm not going to be helping anybody by losing sleep over having to cancel one time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be hurting because I won't be able to put more of myself toward it when I do have the time. I'll be more exhausted, whatever, whatever. And yoga, yeah, yoga definitely helps. Exercise in general is something that I'm, I have a complicated relationship with, as I'm sure most people, most women, I would say in particular of our generation, of all generations have a complicated relationship with, but it's, it's helpful. It's, it brings me back to, it was never that serious. Like that kind of, that kind of way of thinking, like 99% of the things I do were never that serious as much as I enjoy them and they're fulfilling, it's like, for example, it's just a podcast. It's just not you guys though. No, but you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> this is it's just every a podcast, podcast but ours. <laughs> every podcast okay. is yours. It's just an article that people are going to read and it's serving a great purpose. But if the worst case scenario happens here, what is it? And yeah. who is it mm-hmm. going to ever so impact really? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, we've read a lot of your work in the oh, last yes. couple of days Thanks. and not begrudgingly it's been genuinely so enjoyable like you are very talented and it was so really talented. nice to read and thinking about kind of you know language and identity you cover a lot of these types of topics and politics as well in the pieces that you write across all of these different publications Will you talk a little bit about your writing? Like, what's your favorite thing you've written? How do you get into writing? All of the things. I realized when I introduced myself, I didn't say anything about what I do and it wasn't really intentional. It's kind of beautiful though. (laughs) Thanks. So to answer how I got into writing, I have been interested in writing as long as I have been able to. Reading and writing has always been something that I've been super interested in. I've been really interested in fashion and culture and art as well. That's evolved, but writing has always been there as a means to talk about it. And, you know, I was on the school paper in high school. I actually wrote a column for my local paper. I don't really know how that happened. I think they were sort of like, if you want to write this column, let us know, because they'd written an article about something I'd done with student council or something. It was a small enough city that it was like not a massive hurdle to overcome to write for the local paper. (laughs) But I knew that I wanted to pursue it further in college. I was on the school paper at the University of Michigan, which honestly was more intense, I would say, than most of my jobs now. <laughs> and the I think about college makes daily. everything like yeah, a I lot. Everyone on the Michigan Daily, everyone on most college newspapers would agree that whatever they're doing post-grad is nowhere near as intense or serious <laughs> as their college newspaper was. So, but that helps me just... My writing improved so fast. Just being edited by other people on the school paper, I it improved so quickly. I was getting a better idea of the kinds of things I wanted to write about, but also feeling confident that I could write about things that I hadn't explored previously, even if Mm. I felt unqualified. For example, writing about politics was something that scared me shitless. I was like, I don't know enough about politics to write about them. I don't, everyone's going to find me out or something. Whereas the reality is like, if you're reporting on something, you use those skills across the board. You don't have to have that much prior background until you start the reporting and do your research, interview your sources. Like the process stays the same, no matter the subject matter. So it's not like it can't be adapted to something that's, that's new to me. 
also politics is all fake like I took a couple classes <laughs> and I'm like this stuff they really just phrase it in ways that makes it sound complicated to people but it's just gatekeeping language for very basic and yeah all the time senseless concepts that were just made that way because like there's no real explanation mm-hmm. A hundred percent. Fancy words for like, you are going to pay taxes and you will have bad health care. 100%. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's once I got over that and realized it was a bunch of people just peacocking. I was like, okay, Mm. I can write about this and I will. And so I had been pitching again, senselessly in college to editor in chiefs, really aimlessly, not knowing how freelance writing worked, but just pitching to a lot of my favorite magazines and websites, ideas, and hoping that maybe someday someone would answer something, feedback. Probably about 50 pitches into the same editor-in-chief at Teen Vogue when I was freshman year in college, I got an answer from their fashion editor, who I guess the editor-in-chief had passed my idea onto. And she said, we love it. What's your rate? And in my head, I was like, shit, how did she get this pitch from the (laughs) editor-in-chief? And what is my rate? How much do people charge? And luckily... I had worked an internship where I had met a freelance journalist and she, I was able to get in touch with her and ask her for this style of story, the amount of words I was expected to write, the work I was going to put in as my first freelance byline, you know, byline means by test. What, what would make sense to charge a publication like this? And it was, did I say it was Teen Vogue? I don't think I did. Mm-hmm. Did I? I'm crazy. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, say it again. It's a nice name. It's yeah, a, it's a recognizable. <laughs> um, but yeah, they ended up commissioning it. It went well. And then slowly but surely, I had more pitches accepted by them. Like a few months, every few months, it was like something clicked. And I was still pitching way more than that. <laughs> so I would say my pitches were probably accepted 10% of the time at the time. And once I'd built up three or four stories with Teen Vogue, I realized there are other publications that would probably let me do this. So I started reaching out to others. And once I started getting pitches accepted at other places, like InStyle, Refinery29, Bustle, their editors started to come back to me when they needed stories written that they thought I would be a good fit for. So it snowballed into a lot of the time now, the stories I'm writing aren't necessarily stories I've pitched myself. They are we need this done. You seem like you'd be a good writer for it. If you have any feedback on the angle, let us know. But if you want to do it, let us know. Wow. So that's that's the majority of my work recently. Mm. But I will say a lot of the things that I'm most passionate about still come from pitches because that, that is sort of your baby. It's like, you're taking it around until it gets accepted by somebody. You have to workshop it to make it fit their brand in particular. It feels more personal when it's then your ideas start to finish, but yeah. Okay. Off of that, I got to ask the million dollar question, which I hope you can answer. Was the Jack Harlow article a pitch or did they reach out to you? It was, it was pitch, but it was, it was in the sense that I pitched it November of 2021. It came out in June of 2022. So I pitched it in November. And I said, I would love this as a cover story, but if you think it makes more sense as a, a long form feature, I can see what his publicist would think. Before any of the pitching, I reached out to his publicist and was like, I think more women's publications need to be writing about Jack Harlow. This was like the chicken chop date had just come out. He was What a still, moment in history. Think, we remember. Yes. <laughs> How can you forget? Right now, but, but at that moment, they were not sick of him yet. And it was very like, this man is so charming. He is like it boy. And I, I really think I felt at the time and it feels obvious now, but that women, he has women to thank for his success, particularly black women for really validating his position in hip hop without them. Who knows if he would have been legitimized in the way that he has. Mm. But I essentially pitched a story around that to Teen Vogue after talking to his publicist who was like, yeah, we're down. A Teen Vogue cover would be great. And I was like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> you said, <laughs> let me go get that really quick. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it would be great. And I mean, he's qualified for that, but am I? Let's find out. You and are like, qualified. Thank you. I mean, I hope so. Said, I mean, now it's at this point. I, I hope yeah. so. I remember yeah. when you first posted on Instagram about that, 
I read it so fucking quickly and I sent it to so many people from Michigan. I was like, this article, because it's like, okay, Teen Vogue, let's see like what, what you're actually going to say in the article, you know? And I remember that article was so, I mean, Hollis, I think recently read it, but it is so beautifully written. It is so descriptive. You feel like, th- I think that's part of his charm is that whenever he's, not that this podcast needs to be about Jack Harlow, honestly, no, but no, <laughs> part of his charm is that he's very relatable and you feel like you're the one talking to him. And the way that you wrote, you know, you can't always get that across in writing. And the way that you wrote was very much like you, I could envision you sitting at this table, talking to him, having him being kind of intentional, cheeky with his answers. And it was amazing. And I'm I'm curious how you feel about it now, if it's something that you're kind of like, yeah, that's crazy that happened. Or you're kind of like, on to the next one. I think it's sort of one of those things where when you know how much work you've put in behind the scenes, nothing feels surprising. Mm, Even- that's a good quote. We might yeah. pull that one. <laughs> take it, take it. Even if you are surprised that everyone else believed in you as much as you did, you know how much you had to do. So it's like, honestly, pretty hard to step back and be like, holy shit. Did I just do that? In the day off, I was able to do that a little bit because I was getting that answer from other people, people who weren't in my brain the whole time. But for me now, I'm sort of like, I would love to write another cover story. <laughs> Commission me for more artist profiles. Also, I think it's important to know, like I pitched that story to another art magazine. They said no at first. Mm. And then I pitched mm. a team and they said, this can't be a cover, but it could be a feature. And I was like, okay, cool. Keep me updated. But then their senior talent recruiter was like, this person who recruits basically talent for covers at Teen Vogue and other publications under the same publishing house. He was like, Jack Harlow would be a great cover. And they were like, this girl just pitched it and we told her it might not work. So wow. They're uh, like, just kidding. That was a typo. We (laughs) love that so much. (laughs) So they basically, they had him locked down for the cover and weren't able to assign it to me even though it was my idea until they locked it down in January, probably. Wow. They signed it in, in April. Wow. What a roller coaster. How I, do you feel about the idea that someone else might be writing it? I trusted my editors that they would have my back. I was mm-hmm. luckily, I trusted that team. I would trust the Teen Vogue team with my life. Uh, like, I knew- <laughs> We're going to quote that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. I-, I don't know executives at Condé Nast where they're published in any of that. I don't mess with that. But the editors there, I had known many of them for a few years and I knew they knew my work. They knew this was my idea and I knew they were willing to advocate as fiercely for me as they needed to in order for me to become the person behind the idea that I was behind. I knew they would do it. And I also knew Jack's publicist was pushing for me to write it. He told me verbatim in in an email, this is your story. We want to make sure you're the one who writes it. So mm. I was really lucky. Unfortunately, I was lucky. It, it wasn't that I wasn't deserving, but I, there are a lot of deserving people who I'm sure get their ideas snatched all the fucking time. So I'm mm. lucky that people fought to prevent that for me. So Yeah, I told Grace before this that I naturally am a Jack Harlow skeptic. I'm like, okay, there's this white boy. People like him. He's charming. Like I see his little clips flirting, you know, he's a white boy who raps. I'm like, "Mm, okay, we'll see. And I read the article and I legitimately, okay, I'm going to redo the quote. I text Grace and I was like, the first thing I wrote down was bitch respectfully. This is so well-written. It was so intentional. It was so human and it was just genuinely incredibly intriguing like I walked away from it not only thinking wow Jack Harlow one seems very personable but also is clearly super well media trained the way you articulated him speaking which made me feel like I was there when I clearly wasn't was like oh he thinks before he talks and he knows what he's (laughs) supposed to say and like how he's supposed to approach difficult questions but I was also so amazed at how gracefully you navigated very difficult topics because the things that you asked were things that I was like that's what I'm thinking and I'm not like 
the biggest lover and fan. I'm a skeptic. And so I'm really curious to hear this answer. And it was genuinely super well done. And I find that that is a thread that runs through a lot of your work. Like I think you navigate tough topics with a lot of grace and respect, even if they're not your experience personally. So one, I wanted to give you the compliment because you deserve the affirmation, of course. But I'm also wondering what is your favorite piece that you've written? Is it the Jack Harlow article? Is it somewhere else? If it is, what's your second favorite? I I think it might be the Jack Harlow. I hate I hate to say it. I'm like, I like you're saying. I'm that is like the most meaningful compliment to to say that you could tell I was trying to handle it with care because I understand why people would be skeptical. And I I was like I can't write this article without contextualizing my place as a white woman interviewing a white man who exists in a black space. Like that needs to be locked and loaded because that is going to shape the entire article inevitably. And that is not the kind of thing you want to find out at the end of an article because it, it informs everything about what you're about to read. And I I also knew I felt an obligation to the teen Vogue reader and frankly, to the people who amplified him in his career being black women, the way that they have, like, this is the bare minimum to handle it with what I, like you're saying, I hope ended up being grace but really started out as just being like it is not my place to say whether this man belongs in hip-hop that is not a decision I can make nor should I ever try it is my place to walk you through who he is and how he feels about the things like you're saying that we're all thinking. So after reading that article, reading the Landon Barker one. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. I did that. That one's good, too. You that one's great. so much on the resume. That it's one was hard to remember. That was an assignment. So I, I think I oh, cool. remember the assignments, not even to be rude. It just because the pitches, it's like I'm sitting with this and like biting my nails, hoping that my email gets answered the way I want it to. Yeah, I mean, with both of those, in the writing, it seems like you're very present with what is happening the day of. So I, I, I'm i just going to read this, but there's a quote in your Jack Harlow piece that says, when I look at Jack Harlow sitting across from me, I see a mildly nervous, soft-spoken young man who knows he's bound to mess up. And so much of that article and the other one is very observational. You're telling us exactly what you're seeing. You're, you're setting the scene. Is that something you're consciously doing because you want the readers to feel that way? And how do you actually stay that present in the moment when there is a giant celebrity sitting across from you at the table? This is how. Can you describe <laughs> this little? Yeah, show us. I'm like, I have notes from that day and it's like clear coated nails, fresh, things and pauses before answering, calming presence. And my writing is the most messy, <laughs> yeah, I I needed to, even if I didn't write down a full thought in those moments to have the act of trying to write anything down, it almost jogs my memory where I'm like, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I remember what I was thinking when I wrote down, we walked through back by trash. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that is deep. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like almost like it's, if you've ever set a reminder on your phone that doesn't really say anything, but it, it jogs your memory to what you actually need to do, it's sort of like that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only way because as far as the actual, how I was feeling in that moment, I, I don't have much memory of it at all, frankly. <laughs> with doing these interviews with these celebrities, has that changed your perception on celebrities, on media in general? Yeah, yeah, I would say it has. What it's changed it to, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I I think in general, exposure to something makes you less, not necessarily enamored with it, but less taken aback by it when you are in a room with somebody. And I don't know. I, I think it, it makes me, it affirms the fact that I could never do that, nor would I ever want to. Mm. I'm like, that is terrifying and when you meet people in real life or even over a zoom call for an interview whatever even with politicians it's like 
they, regardless of whether they are celebrities in their own right yet or ever will be, it's very much a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you're existing in inherently corrupt social structures. And even celebrity as a social structure is inherently corrupt. So Mm -hmm. it's like you're existing within this space that people don't need to respect you because the space doesn't really have respect for them. So how do you navigate that as a human being? You could be the most earnest person in the universe, but if you're thrust into that position, granted, I mean, none of it ever really happens by accident. I would say celebrity can happen a little bit more accidentally than, than becoming a politician. But even then, you can't predict how big you're going to get, even if you want to be super big. You you can't. Yeah. You really, I mean, unless you're a nepotism baby, and even then they can't predict exactly how how big they're going to become. So it's like, I, I think, I, I don't think sympathy is necessarily the word. I, maybe empathy. I I have a feeling of everything that you do is going to be taken with a grain of salt. It could be the most earnest action anyone's ever taken, but everything's going to be put in the box of you are a celebrity. So we need to be as skeptical as humanly possible. And that's a hard way to live. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, with all of the privilege it comes with, it's a really like, you have all of these privileges that make your life conventionally objectively easier in, in like logistical ways, you know? But then you have this thing sitting on top of you, like, will anything you do ever make a truly positive difference because of your social context? I mean, yes, because you have more resources, but also everything you do is going to be perceived as 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 insincere. And does that matter mm-hmm. to you? And yeah. how do you ask that to be like, it doesn't matter what matters most is the actual objective change I make not how people perceive it. Like what matters mm-hmm. is that I know what I did. Like, how do you get to that point? I, I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. So I think I have a lot of newfound respect for people who manage to, to stay doing what matters to them in light of all mm-hmm. of that and who take responsibility for it. something that Jack Harlow mentioned, which I really appreciated was I could end this all tomorrow. I chose this, you know, like, I could complain all I want. And it's not that I don't have a right to complain, but at the end of the day, I'm the one who put me in this position and wanted this. And if I wanted to stop, I could have said no to this interview. I could have said no to that and that and that. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's even something that we're seeing a lot more is like people that are up and coming, which obviously like up and coming is very relative. These people are already very famous deciding to be like, I'm not really going to engage publicly for like multiple years. Like see, see you all in five years. Like, I yeah. think we're seeing that more and more because like you're saying, I agree, like the money makes the logistical aspects of your life a lot easier and it's easier to do things, but it's also like, if you're in this kind of debilitating like human experience and like you're navigating a very specific, very rare, like mental experience of life how do you cope with that and granted you can afford therapy easier so exactly to cope with it and to help you find those mechanisms but it it's still in a concern it's just i don't know like the idea of champagne problems i think it's a lot more complicated than that when you actually yeah agreed one thing i i also really want to know is i was stalking your twitter naturally and there was a tweet that came up. Let me pull it up because I'm I'm going to read it to you. The receipts. I'm nervous. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That actually, I realized as someone that's on social media, it's probably like <laughs> the scariest way I could have started a sentence. No, okay. <laughs> I'm not about to cancel you. That's you like not what's happening. If I deserve it, okay. <laughs> no, it's know. fine. See, so graceful, even when you think I'm trying to ruin your life. But no. It was a tweet from someone else that I think you retweeted and I'm going to read it. It says, people really get confused about the difference between a person whose professional work is available to the public and a person who is available to the public. And you had made a couple tweets talking about how writers and people who freelance and just people who do creative work are also expected 
to be influencers and to be their own version of micro celebrities in some way, shape or form. So I'm curious how you feel about that topic and how you navigate that topic, being someone that does work in that space. I feel a lot of pressure. I, it's very much knowing that you could do something. So feeling like maybe you should, Mm. but also on another level, knowing just because you have the means to do something doesn't mean it's in your best interest and doesn't mean that you'd be better off. I think I'd be worse off to be honest, if I were focusing on optimizing my social media presence for building a following, I can do that for other people's brands and I enjoy it and I know how to do it and I've done it successfully. Mm -hmm. But to attach myself to that, I, I, I don't think I could separate myself properly mentally from the things I'm posting online. I, I just don't think I could. And I just am hoping that by sticking with what I feel is right for me, eventually that'll resonate with the right people and, and maybe be on the right side of history as far as people being like, see, writers shouldn't have to do this. People whose work is public shouldn't have to do this expected. They're not paid enough to do that, frankly. It's a different career and that's okay. And it's it's not like I'm, I don't like to be public on social media. That's something that I genuinely enjoy and I, I do think is necessary to a degree. So it's good that I enjoy it. But it's it's frustrating. Like I, I think we're reaching a point where a lot of people don't really know where they stand as far as are you inviting me to this because you want me to write about it or because I have influence? What does that mean? I mean, I guess in some ways, journalists are the original influencers. God, that's a horrible thing. It's not a horrible thing. It's just funny sounding. But I'm I'm just hoping that there's going to be more of a movement toward people who, toward acknowledging that it's a crazy expectation to expect everybody who creates work for the public and in public spaces with a large platform to expect them to be building that platform for themselves as individuals. Like you don't have to constantly be building yourself as a brand to be fulfilled in what you do, even if what you do is public facing. I think that's something that I'm really passionate about. Like you are not a brand, you are a human being, human being, even people who build brands online, like you got to separate that, that stuff. And, and you are a human being. And I think it's scary. Yeah, I I resonate with that as a photographer, like just feeling the pressure to grow on Instagram as if your followers mean that all those people are paying you anything, like as if your followers mean that's how many people are reading your articles. I mean, there's more eyes on you. And for me, that stresses me the F out. Like, I don't want that. Like, I don't know. It's associated with credibility, too. And I think incorrect. Yes. Yeah. I think that's going to shift, though. I think with TikTok, it's become so much easier for people to gain a following, not in a bad way, not that they don't deserve it or whatever, but I think people are going to stop conflating follower counts with credibility. Mm -hmm. It's not going to have the social currency that it used to have on Instagram when everyone seems to know at least one person who has more than a hundred thousand TikTok followers. You know what I mean? So true. Totally agree. I think- I I hope at least. Yeah. I think there are so many people, I even just hear and like people talk about social media now of like, because it's not as because you can get more exposure and there are a wider range of people that can have more exposure it cheapens the value of exposure itself which I'm is about it. <laughs> very right which is very loaded and nuanced especially because you know as hostile as platforms are to so many marginalized people like every type of marginalized person yeah. it's still easier to gain a following and to get people to pay attention to you or and eyes on what you do so it's convenient i'll say it's convenient that when wider ranges of people can have access to that capital the capital is not as valuable <laughs> it's interesting in the sense that there are people who you know, people make a livelihood off of this. I'm not trying to discredit that. And it's, it is a bummer for those people. It's like, yeah, how can they maintain their livelihood and maintain their social currency without people who do something completely different and are paid for something objectively different? Like, how can those people not be judged on the same scale? So true. Like, judging them by the same things. I know people who have gotten passed up for jobs and have gotten watched people get hired who are less qualified on paper, but have more followers. Mm -hmm. And frankly, 
it's it's not for nothing in the sense that the people who have more followers are bringing something unique to the table that media really needs at the very least right now. Is it 100%. Mm-hmm. It's hard to reconcile this narrative of social media as being like a place where you can quote unquote, like be your authentic self with the fact that the value and the literal currency that comes out of social media is the fact that it's an effective sales engine for companies. Like that's what it is. And so companies are interested in who is the next person that's going to be an even better sales engine while all the rest of us are like, how do I make a living? Like, how do I tell my friends what I'm up to and tell my family what I'm up to and express myself? But also do I have to do that and sell something? It's, It's a lot. And there's that standard of people saying, well, everybody already knows everything on social media is fake. So what's the harm if I contribute Mm -hmm. to that? It's sort of like, because everybody already knows this, I'm not harming people by doing what I want as far as Photoshopping and not disclosing. And I'm not saying people don't have the right. I I don't really have an opinion on that. I don't think I am in a place to have an opinion on other people's, what they do for themselves. But I, I think it's it's untrue to say that there is no, that you're making no impact and yeah. that, that just the establishment of social media being fake gets rid of all of the bad repercussions of that fakeness. Like 100%. Fairness does not get rid of the consequences. Definitely. To kind of wrap it up, we want to do a quick rapid fire where we'll list off some questions. You could answer them as short or take them as you will, basically. (laughs) To start us off, what is something that you are unlearning right now? I'm unlearning boundaries being a bad thing. That's not easy. I I am wishing you all the best. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to use it. going to need it. (laughs) This is a fan question. What is it like producing Going Mental? That's not really a rapid fire, but it's like, I got to know. So you have to tell me. I noticed the sweater. (laughs) Yeah, it is hectic, but great in the sense that everybody's wearing a million hats, but Eileen values who she works with so deeply. Eileen being the host, context people, but it's great. I really am thrilled and I'm excited to see. We have some really cool one of our biggest episodes ever coming out a week from Thursday. So Thursdays from now that I'm really excited about. And I'm excited that it's, it's making people question things and sparking conversation. And that's really, really inspiring. Awesome. I'm excited for that. Me too. I'm like, Ooh, you heard it here first. (laughs) And it's going to be, it's been in the works for a while. So I'm very excited. Oh my God. I'm excited. What is one piece of advice you will never forget? It's simple, but you don't owe anybody anything. And I forget it a lot, which is funny because like would never forget, but it's it's always back there. It's like recalling it is hard. But I think it's I'm doing active work to to keep it toward the front of my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Connected to the boundaries thing. Yes. Yeah. As an Instagram follower of yours, I mean, I know you're a big bad bunny fan. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have like a favorite bad bunny lyric. Okay. Aprendí que los momentos lindos nunca cuestan, which is I learned that the beautiful moments never cost. That's one. That's mm. like a a really good. I mean, it's a really good one. There are a lot of really really intense ones, but that one comes to mind. I mean, I that's like a whole essay I could write, but love that (laughs) that will be the next podcast episode with you (laughs) exactly and I have one final question for you which is what is something that you think people need to hear right now I think people need to hear from their own communities watch local news read local newspapers listen to local radio follow local mutual aid groups listen to the people in your community and I think For example, people have been messaging me asking how they can help migrants in Brooklyn not to do like a full tie back. But I'm like, what about in your community? And it's not to say that it's bad that you're asking, but I I think we've lost with the globalization of news and, and social media, which is great. In a lot of ways, we've lost touch with the fact that we can make a huge difference in so many things right outside and that people need your help. 
So exactly. I would say listen to any way you can get in touch with what's happening on the ground right in front of you. That's what we need. All right, Tess, will you tell the people where they can find you and your writing? Sure. You can find me at Hi, This Is Tess on Twitter and Instagram and TessGarcia.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Oh my God. Thank you. And you guys are doing great work. I'm really excited to keep listening and I'm flattered. (laughs) Thanks. We're flattered. Are you kidding? Thanks for coming. (laughs) Hey. Hi, Hollis. (laughs) I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm just really happy. I feel like the interview with Tess went super well. What were some of your takeaways? How do you feel about it? She was wonderful, and I feel like we could have talked to her forever. She had so many interesting things to say, along with just like what she does day to day and her volunteering. I mean, she's busy. So I am grateful that she made time for this podcast. I always appreciate hearing other freelancers talk about what it's like to juggle so many different things at once. And I'm kind of new to freelancing. I mean, I had a a nine to five for almost a year, but, you know, it it can be a lonely thing. You know, I do photography. So sometimes like reaching out to publications, try to get photos on their website or just to try to get like press releases when I released a book this past summer trying to get people to write press about it. I mean, we've talked about this before, but you are your own press. So everything is on your shoulders. If you want something to be somewhere, you have to ask for that. And yeah, there's resources online, but sometimes it's hard just um, kind of doing it solo and not knowing if this is what other people are experiencing. So I think that just talking to Tess was reassuring that that's what a lot of people experience, even people that are journalists and not photographers. And I really appreciated her talking about how you will get a lot of no's before you get a yes or even opportunity. You know, she said that she reached out to Teen Vogue so many times via email before they actually like proposed her for a story. And now she's doing a freaking cover (laughs) story with Jack Harlow. And that's wild, but it's like, it's, it's, yeah, I'll keep it short for now. I could go into so much more, but that's like definitely a key takeaway that I really appreciated her talking about so transparently. But what about you? What what do you feel like stood out to you in the interview? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you bringing that up. I know that's also something that Yaz talked about. So it's interesting that it keeps coming up and I feel like we should certainly talk more about it on a different episode in the future. But one of my takeaways or something that really resonated with me was when we were talking to Tess about when you like have a creative interest or you're a freelancer or something along those lines, there's an expectation, almost like an unspoken expectation that because you do work that is public, work that you want people to see, work that you on some level need people to engage with to continue to do that work, there's pressure for you to also become a brand especially when it comes to how we understand like social media and influencer culture now it's like there is this value I'm like hesitant to say it because I like don't want to believe it and live it but (laughs) there is a value oftentimes monetary to making yourself someone that is hyper available and hyper visible online. I think for most people, even, even when I think about my job, I work at a tech company and there is even in thinking about like career progression, one thing that pushes you forward is becoming someone who's like a subject matter expert on a platform outside of your job on what you do. So when you do speaking engagements, when you post on LinkedIn, like it's really something that applies across industries that you should make yourself a brand in order to build, like Tess said, credibility. And it's so hard to balance that with how oftentimes draining and like difficult to navigate and kind of fraught (laughs) social media can be in general. And I know it's something that we've talked about a lot when it comes to as you are. And like you said, like being our own press, you know, how do we want to promote our work? How do we want to push our project forward? And how big of a role does social media have to play 
when oftentimes like on your mental social media has a lot of negative side effects so that yeah. really resonated with me and she had really great insight on that I feel like this would just go into like a high school assembly where it's like social media is bad exactly and then there's like bullet points like bad for your mental health bad for your self-esteem bad for your whatever <laughs> only thing that's bad good for, you. for imposter is imposter like, syndrome inevitable yeah. <laughs> and it's so hard to not fall into the trap of believing it all believing that you had to have to strategize all these things that you were supposed to be just having some fun. We were we supposed were to supposed just all be connecting and liking just some pics, having fun. Grace, my first Instagram post is like I remember two. I don't know which one was my first. One of them. This is before you know the darkness of knowing what social media is now was a picture of my friend's jello at school and she just had this really like intricate beautiful jello and I was like love have to share and the next one was literally a picture of dishes I think it's actually still on my profile go follow me at Hollis B. <laughs> it was Scroll a picture... all the way to the bottom for those dish pics exactly literally a picture of dishes and I think the caption was doing dishes dot 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 because dot, 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 drama. <laughs> and I'm like oh how times have changed like now it is the now it's like high platform. value content. exactly it's now like I'm how like, to do I'm the dishes step by step literally I have to make a really well-performing reel on why jello is important and it heals your gut and it's a creative project and how we develop you know better relationships to jello like it's just not what it used to be and I think Tess has really interesting insights as someone that does have to be really intimately involved in pitching herself and making sure that her work continues to be promoted and a career option. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm glad that we got into it. We have more to talk about for sure. Thanks so much for listening. You can connect with us and find more of our work on our TikTok and Instagram at It's As You Are and our Substack itself at asyouare.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. (laughs) Bye.